So we looked at the Word of God. Are there some good reasons to believe the Bible instead of any other book? And I think there are. We only covered a few of these, um, but there's you know many other great reasons. So say, okay, the God of the Bible, a lot of people still have a hard time. Is this too loud or? You guys get blown away there? Okay. So, now we're going to look at the question of evil. The hardest question for the Christian faith. Um, why is it there a God that's all loving and all powerful, yet there's evil in this world? So we need to wrestle with these ideas. We need to be able to, to discuss this with our, with our friends and give them good biblical answers. I see you guys are copying. Very good. So under study, write great controversy. So we're going to look at this problem of evil and see if we can't get our hands around this. I'll let you guys copy that, and then I'll tell you the purpose and center it. Yeah, can everyone read this? Oh, the stand. I'm new at this. I don't know how I got myself into this. <laughs> and again, these brackets are just kind of things that we're going to refer to. So I put them in brackets. So we're looking at the origin of evil, the outworkings of evil, the end of evil, and then an appeal. <clears throat> Origin of evil, outworking of evil, end of evil, appeal. I'm impressed not many of you guys snuck out the back. Thought I might scare more away. Joshua, book of Joshua, yeah. Okay, the purpose. To demonstrate that there is a cosmic conflict between God and Satan. To demonstrate that there is a cosmic conflict between God and Satan. And that God is not the originator of evil. <clears throat> to demonstrate that there is a cosmic conflict between God and Satan. And that God is not the originator of evil. To demonstrate that there is a cosmic conflict between God and Satan, and that God is not the originator of evil. Center it upon the person of Jesus Christ again. Jesus Christ is the solution to evil, not the originator of it. Jesus Christ is the solution to evil, not the originator of it. Again, you guys can alter these things. I use a lot of run-on sentences when I'm trying to put everything into one sentence here. So. <clears throat> Jesus Christ is the solution to evil, not the originator of it. Let's begin our Bible study in the book of Genesis. We're looking at this first part, the origin of evil. Let's go to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to shuffle through some verses here. As you can see, I put in brackets. All you want to point out to people here is the repetition of the word good. Okay? We're going to point out all the times when the Genesis says that this is good. 1 verse 4. God saw the light. God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. Verse 10. You can either just jot down these verses or underline them as we go. 
Verse 10, God called the dry land earth and the gathering of the waters he called seas. God saw that it was good. Verse 12, the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed, and in them, and after their kind. And God saw that it was good. Verse 18, and to govern the day and night, and to separate the light and the darkness, God saw that it was good. That was verse 18. Verse 21, God saw that it was good. This is the creation account. Everything he's creating, he's looking at it and said it was good. Verse 25, God saw that it was good. And finally, verse 31, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was, what does the Bible say? Very good. God saw all that it was made, it was very good, and there was evening and morning the first day. So what happened? We look around the world today, and there's many, there's many words that we could use, and I don't think many of us would say that it is very good. Right? There's something you can say to the person you're studying with. So what happened? God said he created it, and it was very good. What happened? Then we're going to go to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. Going to verse 24. God created, said it was good. It's not good. Something must have happened. Matthew, first book of the New Testament. Matthew 13, verse 24, and the Bible reads, Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed what kind of seed? Good. Same idea, good seed. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident, became evident also. The slave of the landowner came to him and said, Sir, did you not sow what kind of seed? Good seed in your field. How then does it have tares? And he said to him, these are five important words. What did he say? An enemy has done this. Has done this. Underline that. An enemy has done this. The slave said to him, do you want us then to, to go and gather them up? But he said, no, for a while while you're gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both, the, both to grow into the end of the harvest and the time of the harvest. And I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them up. I gather the wheat into my barn. So all you want to point out here is that again, we see this, this parable that Jesus is telling, that it was good, it was good, there was tares, and who sowed the tares? An enemy has done this. So you want to point out, how much responsibility does the, the good sower take for the tares? None. Takes no responsibility. He says, an enemy has done this. So I mean, why, why this parable? I mean, what does Jesus mean by this? So, in this instance, we don't have to, to scratch our heads. He explains it. Let's jump down to verse 36 so we can understand this parable. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. So he's explaining the parable. And he said to him, The one that sows good seed is who? The son of man. Okay, so the one that sowed the good seed is the Son of Man. And the field, what is the field? The field is the world. 
And as for the good seeds, <clears throat> what are the good seeds? Who are they? Children of the kingdom. <clears throat> and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is who? The devil. So you have good seed. The one that sowed the good seeds is the son of man. You have the tares. And then who sowed the tares? The devil. I want to make it very clear to them, this, this parable that Jesus is, is telling us, the sower the, of the good seed, or Jesus, takes no responsibility for the tares being there. Okay? And now we see this person of the devil. So the transition, you can just ask a, a kind of rhetorical question to get them thinking, who is this devil? Why does this devil exist? So now we're going to go to Luke chapter 13. To find out who this devil is. Luke chapter 13. Reading from verse 10. Luke chapter 13 starting in verse 10. Matthew, Mark, Luke, Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 10. And he, that he in reference to Jesus, was teaching in one of the synagogues on what day? The Sabbath day. And there was a woman who for 18 years had a sickness caused by a spirit. And she was bent double and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, underline this, Woman, you are freed from your sickness. Woman, you are freed from your sickness. In the interest of time, I'm going to jump these verses and just jump down to verse 16, the next thing we want to point out. And this woman, a daughter of Abraham as she is, whom, who has bound for 18 years? Whom Satan has bound for 18 years long, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? So the planter took no responsibility for the tares. This sick woman, Jesus takes no responsibility for her sickness. He says, whom Satan has bound for 18 years, but Jesus is the one that sets her straight. Right? Satan bends her over, Jesus Christ straightens her out. Takes no responsibility for this woman's sickness. So begin to reason with people. Say, you know what, maybe all those questions that, you know, why would God take my grandmother like that? Sometimes I ask those questions. Why, why would God do that? Maybe, maybe these were the wrong questions. Yeah? Maybe it, wasn't, maybe it wasn't God that did this. Maybe there's another character to this story. So who is this, this Satan? It's a transliteration from the word Satan. S-U-H-T-A-N. Transliteration from the word Satan, and it means an adversary or opponent. So that's the transition. Who is this Satan? Let's go to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, verse 18. Could just go back a couple of pages. Luke chapter 10, verse 18. Any questions thus far? I see some people writing. I'll let you guys catch up. So in the beginning, we saw that God created it good. We saw a parable by Jesus saying that there, yeah, I realize there's good and bad, but there is an enemy who sowed the bad. 
We see that there's a sick woman in the time of Jesus, and he says, you know what, this woman's sickness, this was Satan who bound her. Again, takes no responsibility for this. Luke chapter 10, verse 18. And he, this is Jesus again, he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Wow. I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. And you might wonder, what in the world was Satan doing in heaven? Right? So there's two things you want to point out here. One, that Satan fell from heaven or he came from heaven. And two, it says that he fell. Right? It doesn't say that he was tripped. Right? It doesn't say that God pushed him. It said that he fell. Right? Because usually when you fall, it's typically your own fault. So, so no one tripped him. He fell from heaven. Okay? So then you, you, you're probably wondering, what in the world was Satan doing in heaven? So we're going to look at a couple of texts here, um, some Old Testament prophets, to see what they have to say. And what they're going to do here is they're going to give us a behind-the-scenes viewpoint. And an illustration I like to use is one of a, of a play. I don't know how I get these illustrations. I don't really like art. I don't like plays. But they, they seem to work. So you have a play, right? And you have a couple of the main figures out here that are acting it out. And, you know, that's just usually a couple of people. But you, you know that most of the action is going on behind the curtains, right? You have all the people doing the lights and, 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 and the wardrobes and all this stuff. There's a whole lot more to the story behind the scenes than, than just what you're seeing. Does that make sense? So what the Old Testament prophets are going to do here, they're going to kind of, they're going to pull back the veil for us and give us a behind-the-scenes look into this character of Satan and figure out what's going on here. Because there's more to this story. Okay, so that's an illustration that I like to use here. And you can, you can kind of vary with that. And, you know, when we look at all this evil in the world, we see Hitler, um, Mussolini, Saddam Hussein, all these, all these horrible people. And what these are, they're really just leaves on the tree, right? They're just leaves on the tree, and we need to get to the, the root, or the, 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 the trunk, or the, the root of this problem, okay? All these things are branching off from something that is deeper than that. Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel chapter 28. We've been there. Well, actually, I don't think we've been there yet. Ezekiel 28. So we're trying to figure out who is this, who is this Satan, who is this devil, and what in the world was he doing in heaven? What was he doing there in heaven? Ezekiel 28, beginning in verse 11. Again the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up lamentation over the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God. So this is a reference to the king of Tyre, who's an actual tyrantical king, I guess you would call it. Um, but we're going to see that it's not actually referring to the king of Tyre. It's kind of looking behind the evil of him. We're going to see that, you know, this is talking about some perfect being that was in heaven. So it obviously wasn't the king of Tyre. It's, I mean, everyone agrees this is a reference to, to Satan. Um, it says, you had the seal of perfection. Notice all the times when it says that he was perfect. You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. List a bunch of stones here. Um, end of verse 13. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed... What's that next word? Cherub who covers. So what does that mean, a cherub? 
some of the old saints in here. I know we have some biblical scholars. What does that mean, a cherub? Exactly right, an angel. Just for your reference, I don't know if I wrote it, Psalm 99, verse 1. So you had the Ark of the Covenant, right? And then God's holy seat sitting upon, upon that, and you had two cherubim, two angels that were in the very proximity of God that were arched over there. And so this, this figure, this Satan, he was an anointed cherub. He was a perfect angel. He was perfect, right? Verse 14, And I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. Note this, you were blameless in your ways. Again, a reference to his perfection. From the day you were created until righteousness was found where? In you. So now we want to mark all the references to putting the emphasis on this was his fault. This was, you were perfect. This was something that you did. Okay? Until righteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were filled internally with violence, and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by the reason of your splendor. Therefore, I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. So we have this perfect being, this cherub, this, 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 uh, this covering angel, but something happened, right? Sin was, and this unrighteousness was found in you. So you can ask the person, how, I mean, how could this happen? How could such a perfect being like this, that's in the very presence of God, how could he fall? How could he have done this? You know, I don't have the answer to that. But, you know, a lot of other Old Testament prophets ask this question also. Let's see what Isaiah has to say. So there's a transition. How is it that such a perfect being could fall like this? But there's also some other Bible writers that ask this very same question. Let's go to Isaiah. Turn to the left in your Bibles. Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14, we're going to start in verse 12. Isaiah 14, starting in verse 12. What's the first word that it says there? How? So now we have Isaiah asking this very same question that we're wrestling with today. How? You have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of dawn. My Bible says star of the morning. What does some other translation say? Son of the morning. What did I say? Star of the morning? Oh, yeah. What's that? Any other ones? Lucifer. Very good. Lucifer, this, this perfect angel, this star of the morning. Oh, Lucifer, son of the dawn, you who have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations, but you said where? You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven, I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself as the most high. Notice the five times. I. I will go up. I will go up. I will go up. And what does he finally want to become? He wants to be like the most high. Satan had an eye problem. Lucifer had an eye problem. Right? 
You notice at the very heart, the very middle of sin is I, right? The very middle of pride is I. The very middle of Lucifer is I. It's interesting. He has an I problem. Okay. So there's a lot of things we want to point out here. One, we want to point out the five eyes. And what is his motivation? We cannot miss this. Power. Right? He wanted the power of God, but not the character of God, as some will say. I, 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 I want to be like who? The Most High. He wants to be like God. So we see here, but it doesn't say Satan. It doesn't say the devil. It says Lucifer, or son of the morning. So notice that God... You need to point this out. God did not create Satan. Okay? God did not create Satan. He created Lucifer who chose to become Satan. This is a, this is a very important part. He did not create Satan. He created Lucifer who chose to become Satan. Okay? Fair enough. So why would God let it happen? We look at all these horrible things in the world. We see that this Lucifer, he was the one that originally... Um, Sin and this evil started with him. He chose to become Satan. So why would God let this happen? Okay? And here's an analogy I, I use with people, and I think it works. You can call it the, the gun analogy. This is my gun, okay? So I, you guys all kind of show up to this, this meeting that we're having tonight. Say, oh, that Eric, he's such a good guy. He's, he's one of those people that love Jesus, right? We, we, can, we can trust this guy. But you know what? I pull a fast one on you guys, right? I'm not, we're not going to have a Bible boot camp. I'm going to take all your guys' wallets. Okay? So I got this, this gun, this, I don't know, a revolver or whatever, and I pointed at Javid. I say, Javid, give me your wallet. Javid, what would you do? You'd probably give me your wallet, unless you want to get shot, right? right? I say, hey, Ross. Ross, stand on one leg for me. You don't have to do that. He would do that. Could he do that? Absolutely he could do that. Javid could absolutely give me his wallet, because they don't want to get shot, Right? And then I said, you know what, Chelsea in the back? Chelsea, love me with all of your heart. I have a gun. Listen to what I say. Love me with all of your heart. Could she do that? Why couldn't she do that? Because love cannot be forced. Right? Love by definition, to be love, must have the option to say no. This is a very important part. Love, in order to be love must have the option to say no. I look forward to my wedding day. It's going to be a great day. And, you know, one of the things that makes it so great when two people get married is she has the option to say no, right? But she says yes. So you, and the thing is, God would much rather have a real relationship with risk than to rule over rocks and trees. Does that make sense? He would rather have real relationships and love with a loving relationship that has a risk. And whenever you create free beings, you know, with the free will to choose to love you, they may choose to not love you. But there's really no other way to do it, to, to have a, a truly loving relationship. Does that make sense? This is, a, this is an important thing we need to, to grasp. This is, you know, this is the free will defense of evil. And I think it's, you know, it's been around for a long time because it's the true defense. You cannot have a relationship of love when it's forced. And you know, and tell them, God is very aware that this world has problems. God knows that this is not the best possible world, but he knows it's the only way to the best possible world. Does that make sense? So this is the only way that you can get to a, a heaven or a, or a harmonious environment where everybody freely loves each other. 
Because you, you, you cannot force that. It has to have the option to say no for it to be love. So God knows that this is not the best possible world, but it's the only way to the best possible world. Now, is there any questions on that? I hope I explained that, that well. This is a good analogy to use to kind of point out the, you know, how God had to create beings with free will. Okay? All right. So, now we're into our transition. We're going from the origin of evil to the outworkings of evil. So here's what you can say. Now we saw the Bible's answer for the origin of evil, but how does this play out in the rest of our lives? We saw the Bible's answer for the origin of evil, so how does this play out in our own lives? We're going to go to the outworking of evil. And what was it that the devil wanted? Power. And he wanted to be like the Most High. He wanted to be God. Let's go to 2 Thessalonians, New Testament book, alphabetical order. For the T's, not for the whole New Testament. Second Thessalonians. And we're going to see that this study, so I mean, this first study that we gave, the Word of God, I mean, we went to Daniel 2, one, because it's a very powerful prophecy, but it sets up later studies. It, set, it's, it sets it up so you can look at Daniel 7 and have an understanding of these world empires, so we can get into some of the key doctrines of our church, like... Uh, you know, the, the Antichrist and the Mark of the Beast and stuff. So it's a good foundation to look at this prophecy. And now we're kind of, kind of pinpointing and pointing out what it is that Satan wants. You know, he wants to be like God, and we're going to see that he wants worship. And we're going to see how he's, how he's going to attempt to do that, to set up our later studies. Second <clears throat> Thessalonians 2, starting in verse 1. Now we request, request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by spirit or by message or a letter as, from, as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction." who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes a seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being who? God. So the second coming, according to the text, the second coming is not going to happen until what? Until the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Who is this man of lawlessness? Anyone know? The anti we call it in our common colloquial terms the Antichrist, right? Actually, this beast of Daniel chapter 7. Daniel 7, 25, you can write that down. Thinks and intends to change times and laws. So this is kind of, we're, we're starting to review this, this Antichrist figure, this little horn of Daniel 7, or this beast of Revelation 13 that we you know, commonly call the Antichrist. And he is going to, um, he's the man of lawlessness who opposes and exhausts himself above every so-called God, and what is, what is the purpose of him? What does he want? What is, what is he striving for? The object of worship. Okay? So the purpose of this, this Antichrist, this man of lawlessness, you know, can, we'll get to, it'll make more sense when we get to Daniel 7 and Revelation 13. Um, we'll see that the, the purpose of this is for worship. So now the transition, you can just say, you know, let's learn a little bit more about this Antichrist. Because that's what people want to know, right? 
When they studied the Bible with you, when I first began to study with my girlfriend, she was you know, raised in the Roman Catholic Church, and um, she's a Seventh-day Adventist now. She was baptized because she came to studies like this. The Word of God convicts. The Word of God is true, my friends, because I see it change people's lives. It's something that changed my life. And she was, you know, when I began to study with her, you know, she's like, yeah, she likes this stuff, but people want to get, they want to know what that mark of the beast is, right? 666, that's, that's all they want to know. They want to get to the good stuff, right? So we're, we're, we're getting to the good stuff, but people are, you know, because there's all this confusion about it. What's it going to be? Is it going to be a barcode? Should I really buy groceries with a credit card? All this stuff, man. So we're going to see that we have biblical answers for these. The people that we have teaching aren't going to sit up here and scratch their head and say, you know what, I think it's this. I think it's some computer in Switzerland and all this stuff that people say. We say, you know what, let's see what the Bible has to say. So let's go to Revelation 13. And we'll actually, we'll, we can point out some verses to end a lot of the confusion on this whole Mark of the Beast issue. We'll see. And while you're turning there, I'll just kind of explain. The book of Revelation is an amazing book. Have you guys ever heard of chiasm, a chiastic structure? Yeah, we looked at Daniel chapter 2, and Daniel 2 through 7 is a chiastic book, right? It's a, uh, it's a mountaintop, because Daniel 2 and 7 had to do with the kingdoms, 3 and 4 similar stories, 5 and 6 similar stories. It's chiastic structure. 2 through 7, they were written in Aramaic, and they, were, they have a chiastic structure. The book of Revelation has a chiastic structure. What that means is, the beginning of the book of Revelation all the way from verses 1 through 12. You know, many Bible scholars, you know, outside the Amherst Church, realize this, that they're all leading up to this Revelation 13 and 14, this mark of the beast. And then everything else in the book of the Revelation is kind of trailing off of that. It's, it's chiastic. The book of Revelation is written in a way so that your mind is drawn to this mark of the beast crisis, this, this end-time central issue. And then at the very top of this, this chiasm, I mean, that was the one for Daniel, we're going to see at the very top of this, I won't look at these verses, but all these verses, chapter 13, verse 4, 8, and 12, and 15, and chapter 14, 6, 7, and 9. The thing in common that all those verses have is what word? Worship. Worship. You, you just read it. Uh, just a cursory viewpoint of Revelation 13 and 14. And, you know, we're, we're still deciding on what all studies to give, but we may have a specialty class where we have a Bible study on each of the, for, of the three angels' messages. So I'll give a study on the first, I'll give a study on the second, and a study on the third. So we really, because that's foundation to our church, you know, and I think they're, they're very good studies. And, they, and they, they all point to that in the end time, you know, we don't know how it'll be enforced with, you know, credit cards and all this stuff. But what we do know is the issue in the book of Revelation is worship. Okay? I hope that made sense. I wasn't planning on getting too far ahead of myself. So let's go to Revelation 13 and 1 through 4. I'll read these. And, the Drake, and, and tell people to say, you know what, we're going we're gonna to spend more time in this. Don't get all caught up on the, the cryptic language and all the symbols. You know, we'll, we'll get to this. We're just trying to point out one specific point from this. And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns, seven heads. And on his horn were ten diadems, and on his head were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and the mouth like a mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and his great authority. We'll stop right there. Where are those images taken from? Daniel 7. Daniel 7, right? What about the order? Is the order different? It's exactly reversed, right? Do, do you guys realize that? So it says, I saw the beast was like a leopard, then a bear, his mouth was like that of a lion, and then a dragon. 
Because in Daniel, so Daniel's sitting here, Daniel chapter 7, and he says them in the proper sequence where these world empires come because he's looking into the future, right? But now we have John standing here, Revelation 13, and he's reading him in reverse order, starting with the beast, then going to the, what's the next one? Leopard, the bear, then the lion to Babylon, okay? So I think we're, a lot of us are probably familiar with that. We'll, we'll, get, we'll clear that up later, too, when we spend time in Daniel 7. Revelation 13, 3, I saw one of his heads that if it had been slain, his fatal wound was healed, and the whole world and the whole earth was amazed and follow after the beast. This is what we're after, verse 4. They worship the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast, and they worship the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who can fight against him? Okay, so who are they worshiping here? The people who are... But who, okay, so who do they think that they are worshiping? They, worship, they think they're worshiping the beast, right? It says, and they worship the beast, say. Okay? Um, so this beast is, you know, another, another name you know, that we use for the Antichrist or this beast power of, of Daniel 7, this little horn, etc. But, so we need to get our minds around this. Let's go. Verse 4 says, they worship the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast, and they worship the beast, saying. So now this is a technical term. It's called a switcheroo. Okay, I hope that's not too technical for you guys, but it's a switcheroo. So no, because what the, what the devil's doing here is he's getting you to think you're worshiping the dragon, or to think you're actually worshiping this beast, but in turn you're worshiping who? Satan. And who's the, who's the dragon, first of all? Satan. How do you know that? 12.9, right? Just jot that down. 12.9 says that this dragon is Satan. So why does he do this? He wants to be like God. He wants to be worshipped, but he's, he's not stupid, right? So if Satan were to come in here tonight with, with, a, with a, you know, a, a sign on his chest that says, you know, I'm the devil, I'm here, worship me. You know, and he has his little, what is that, trident and a cape and his little horns, breathing fire. Now, how many people would worship that? Nobody would. So he needs to use a front man. He needs to use a deception. He needs to use this beast power, this antichrist power, that people think they're worshiping in the correct way, but in turn, they're actually worshiping him. Okay? It's a switcheroo. Very subtle, very crafty. We see that in 12.9, that he is a deceiver. He does this through deception. Okay? And again, these verses here are just to point out this issue of worship. And another illustration I like to use here is, have you ever seen a counterfeit $13 bill? Why have you never seen a counterfeit $13 bill? Because you, you go and you try to buy groceries and you give them a $13 bill, and what do they do? <laughs> They'll laugh in your face. But, but there are counterfeit $100 bills and counterfeit $10 bills. So if the devil's going to counterfeit something, he's not going to, and if he's trying to counterfeit something and get this worship, he's going to make it look like the real thing. Like he was a perfect angel, right? I mean, he's not a, he's not a dumb guy. He's, he's, he's using this, this counterfeit to, to trick people into something. And, and again, this, this beast power has to be a religious power because people are worshiping it. So they're worshiping this, this religious power and they're in turn actually worshiping the dragon. Well, I'm just kind of giving a little foresight to where a lot of these studies are going. So did that make sense? The illustration there, the switcheroo and the counterfeit $13 bill. Okay, so this desire to be worshiped was also apparent in the time of Jesus' transition. This desire to be worshipped 
was also apparent in the time of Jesus. Let's go to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew 4. Hang in there, my friends. We'll get through this quickly. Matthew chapter 4. Still, pointing out, we need to realize, you know, sometimes we think the devil's just here to, 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 to kill us and to harm us and do all these bad things. There's more to this devil than, than what meets the eye. He, he, wants, he wants to be like God, and the way you become like God is you receive things which God only deserves, and that is worship. So if he can trick people into worshiping him, he becomes God. Okay? And now the temptation of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, we see the height of the insanity of this created being asking the creator to worship him. He's basically putting his cards on the table and saying, you know what, this is me versus you. This is, this is what I'm after. So Matthew 4, we already said the temptation of Jesus. We're just going to look at verse 9, but it's, a good, it's, a, it's good to summarize verses 1 through 8. So I'm sure a lot of us are familiar with this. This is the temptation of Jesus. Um, as soon as he's baptized, the, the devil comes right after him. He's tempted how? What's the first temptation? Food. Food, right? So he's tempted on food, he's tempted on uh, presumption, and he's tempted on worship. And side note, just for you guys, don't tell me that we're not tempted on food. Don't tell me that we're not tempted on food. How did the first representation of the human race, how did he fall? Food. Right? Then God hits control alt delete right? when he comes. The, the world is so wicked, there's no one good, and he just wipes them out with a flood. Then who is the, this next representation? Noah. How did he fall? Got drunk, didn't he? Fell because of appetite. Now we come to Jesus. The next representation that we have, and praise the Lord that he didn't mess up, right? How's the very first temptation that he has? Food. Different subject, but don't tell me that we're not tempted on food. Anyway, um, so we come to, to 4, chapter 9. And he, this is the devil, he said to him, to Jesus, the devil said to Jesus, all these things, you know, he takes him up on this mountain, he shows him all this stuff. He's like, listen, I will give you all of this if you would just fall down and do what? Worship me. Yeah? Then how does Jesus respond? Jesus said to him, go Satan, and then what does he say? For it is written. So verses 1 through 8, you want to point that out. Every time that Jesus was tempted, how did he withstand the, the, the temptations of the devil? The first thing he said every time, for it is written, for it is written, for it is written. Jesus knew his Bible, and he knew that knowing the scriptures was his way to, to conquer this person and to, and to get victory over this devil. Another important thing to point out to the person you're studying with. For it is written, for it is written, for it is written. And again, the devil's putting his cards out there. This is what I want. I want to be worshipped. Okay? And this, I was contemplating whether or not to put this in, this, this Eden to Eden kind of illustration. Kind of cool thing you have is when you come to Genesis 1, you have... You know, the creation, and you have Genesis 2, and you have the creation of a, a perfect world with a perfect Adam and a perfect communion with a perfect God, right? And then you come to Genesis chapter 3, and what do you find in Genesis chapter 3? The fall, right? So the first two chapters, you have this perfect being, this perfect communion with a perfect God. Come to Genesis 3, the third book in, and then you see the, the origin or the entrance of this evil into the world. And then the last three chapters of the Bible are Revelation 22, 
21 and 20. So the, it's, a, it's another chiastic structure, the, the whole Bible. So Genesis 1 and 2, perfect being, perfect communion with a perfect God. Genesis 3, you have the fall. Now you come to the, the third from the last book of the Bible, and you see not the entrance of sin, but the destruction of it. And then again, God restoring what? The perfect, the Eden in the end is perfect God with perfect relation with a perfect people. Isn't that interesting? So you have, it's, and it's kind of sandwiched. So what's, what's, what's all this stuff in between here? Basically God doing that, right? God restoring this, this relationship with his created beings that was lost in the beginning. Very cool. Now let's go to, so we saw the, the origin of evil. God did not create it, right? He created Lucifer. Lucifer chose. Why didn't God just, you know, not allow this happen? Well, you can't have a, a loving relationship, you know, unless it has freedom. The outworking of evil, the devil wants to be like God. He's going to use the Antichrist to get worship so he can be like God. And now we're going to see the end of evil. Now I just want to use just one more illustration so we get this. So the question might come up, why would God... So the devil, he makes this decision in heaven. We're going to see that in Revelation 12 here, this war in heaven, to, to go against God, right? Why wouldn't God just take him out and put an end to this? Yeah, so, so think of this. Say there's a presidential election, right? Um, so who's running? John McCain and Barack Obama, right? So say, say it's like neck and neck, right? And these, these two guys are running for office, right? Because we come to Revelation 12, war in heaven, that word war means polemos in the Greek. It's a, it's a debate over ideas, ideology. They're, they're campaigning here. So anyways, you have this presidential election and uh, say that one day Barack Obama, John McCain's beating him a little bit. He says, you know what? I got, I got some evidence that uh, John McCain, he was in a, an, an affair, right? He was doing some, some bad stuff and I'm going to have a news conference tomorrow and I'm going to put all the evidence out there and show you guys don't want him as your president because he was just in an affair and he's, he's no good. He's a bad guy. Right? So Barack Obama is saying that about John McCain. Says that one night, the next day he's going to have a news conference and put all the evidence out there. So now all the reporters, everyone's in a flurry, right? They're like, oh man, we haven't seen this. So they're getting ready for the news conference and wait, who was making the accusations of who? Oh, yeah, Barack was making of, of John McCain. So then Barack Obama doesn't show up. He's gone, right? They're there. They're looking for him. Where's this evidence you have? And he doesn't show up. Comes to find out that night he was killed. Done. So in the eyes of the public, what are you guys going to think? <laughs> Number one, McCain, he offed him, right? McCain took this guy out. What else are you going to think? What are you going to think about what he was saying? You were going to think it was true. Why else would he take him out? So if God, if, if Satan raises this rebellion and these questions against God, and God just takes them out right then, number one, it's going to look like maybe, maybe this Lucifer, maybe he was saying the right thing. Yeah? And number two, it's going to look like uh, that, that God did it. You know? So uh, it's another illustration. Hopefully, hopefully that makes sense. Because it's really, the, we're going to get into this tomorrow, the question of God's character. We're going to see that these things kind of have to pan out so you can see who the devil is and who God is for, for who they really are. And God's given him his chance, you know, to, to kind of run his campaign here. Okay, Revelation 12, 7 through 12. And there was war in heaven. I already told you guys the Greek word there is polemos, where we get our word polemics. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a campaign. It's a political. 
Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels waged war. And they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And that great dragon was thrown down, that serpent of old is called the devil and Satan, who deceived the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Raises this rebellion, they're not strong enough, God kicks them out of heaven. Then a loud voice in heaven saying, Now, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He accuses them before God day and night. And they overcome him, or overcame him, because of the blood of the Lamb. And who is that Lamb? Jesus, right? They overcome him with, with the blood of the Lamb, the, the sacrifice of Christ, and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life, even when faced with death. For this reason, notice this little bit of a contrast here. So he kicked out of heaven. They overcome them with the blood of the land. And it says, For this reason, O heavens, and you who, for this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. So heaven, he's kicked out of there, says, Okay, you guys rejoice, he's gone. But then what's the next thing it says? Woe. Woe to the earth, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. The best thing about this book is you can jump to the end and you can read the end of the book, right? We know who wins this war. He was kicked out of hate, kicked out of heaven, but he says, woe to us, woe to you who inhabit the earth because he's coming down on you with, with great wrath because he knows he only has a short time. So although this devil was defeated, this great controversy really hits home because there's still a battle over us, right? There's still a battle over our hearts and who we are going to choose, Okay? The decision is still ours. Real quick, we'll go to Ephesians. Ephesians 6. So how is it that we stand up to this devil? Ephesians 6, 11 and 12. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. And the Bible reads, Put on the full armor of God, so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So we need to put on our full armor of God to, to, to stand up to this devil. Right, we saw in Revelation 12 that this devil was kicked out, he's been defeated, but there's still a decision upon our own hearts of who we're gonna who we're gonna choose here, who we're gonna pick. Okay? So let's go to Joshua as our appeal text. And you always want to make an appeal. You never want to present the truth without giving them a, a chance to make a decision. Isn't that right? And then appeal for our first one, I don't remember if I if I uh, if I told you guys this, but you go into experience, you tell them how the Bible has changed them, and you say, you know what? So what do you think? Do you want to give this guy a try? Do you want to to study his word more and see if it actually is true. So, I mean, they're progressive, the appeals. The first one, you just want to get another study, right? You say, so you want, you want to try this guy out and, and give him a chance? So now we're going to see the appeal for this great controversy. A familiar text to many of us. One of my favorite verses in all the Bible. Joshua 24, 15. If it is disagree... Oh, wait, Joshua 24, 15. I think it's right after Deuteronomy, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, right after the Torah. 
If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served which were beyond the river or the god of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, what does it say? We will serve the Lord. So the devil, he's, he's been defeated. Christ conquered him on the cross and you can overcome him with the blood of the lamb. But the decision is ours. And I tell you, my friends, that I've, I've chose to be on Christ's side. I'm picking the winner on this one, right? So the decision that we need to make is who are, whose side are we on? And for me, I choose Christ. So you want to say, my friend, do you, do you want to make that decision today? There still may be some questions. And, you know, b b before you ever make an appeal, you want to make sure that the, the, the study was clear. So I ask them, you know, I'll ask you guys, was the, was the study clear tonight? I think the Bible offers some compelling reasons, the best reason why there's evil in this world. A lot of times people want to point out the Christians and say, well, how do you deal with this? Why is there such suffering? I don't care whatever worldview that you subscribe to. You have to have an answer for this problem of evil. Sometimes people just try to point to the Christians. I mean, you just think of a skeptic or an atheistic worldview. Who are you to say that there's evil in this world? I mean, how, do, how can we grant you that assumption that there's, that there's actually evil in this world? I don't want to get off on that. But, uh, so there's great answers for this, that there's evil in this world. It originated with the devil. He wants to be worshipped. It's not going to cut it. Christ defeats him, and we need to choose Christ. Okay? Was that clear? Did everyone get good, good notes? I can, I can let you guys look at my notes. So I encourage you, don't get behind. You know, we have tomorrow some more studies. Go home this week. Keep up with it. Go in your Bible and mark these studies so you're ready to give them to someone because these, these papers are just going to stack up and you're going to feel overwhelmed. It's never going to happen. So, and a, and a good recommendation is get a .3 lead pencil. .3 lead, very fine. You can write small in the margin and it won't smear. Okay? I think Chelsea has some closing announcements. I'm going to pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your be being a God that loves us and gives us things like prophecy and gives us great reasons that we can believe in you. And we thank you for the, the, how the Bible explains that there is good reasons for why there is evil and that ultimately you just wanted to have a loving relationship with us and you gave us this free option to choose you. And as Joshua 24, 15 says, I want to choose you, Christ. And hopefully my friends in here want to do the same. We just pray that you will be with us as we, as we study these doctrines, help them to convict us so that we may live these things out in our own life and so that we may also teach them and to draw people into a relationship with you. We love you so much. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Let everyone say. Amen. Amen.